The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose, and joining me for The Bigger Picture is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Gracho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, where shall we begin with our conversation today? Well, Simon, I think we've got to begin with this week's G7 summit in Cornwall because it's the first major overseas trip for the 46th president of the United States, Joseph R. Biden. He is taking a trip to the United Kingdom, so he's paying homage to the special relationship. But he is also factoring in a trip to see Vladimir Putin as well. But this is a major summit for many, many reasons, not least of all the fact that it brings together several key themes about possible alignment between the Johnson government over here and the Biden administration over there as well. We've already seen an announcement that America is going to be um, purchasing 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine as well. But we're also seeing Joe Biden issuing a warning on things like the Northern Ireland Protocol. But there's room as well to work on things like climate change, too, to bring to bring more alliance together. Mm. Um, Cornwall it almost seems an odd choice. I mean, for most of us, getting to Cornwall is a nightmare in the summer. Presumably, they will not be either travelling from Paddington uh, or driving down and uh, having to go down the A303. Well, Boris Johnson has flown in, surprisingly, yeah. from London to Newquay Airport and then driven to the station. Funny enough, my family is staying around the corner from... I've, <laughs> sta- I've actually stayed in the hotel where the G7 summit is being held about 15 years ago with my family. So mm. my father reminded me that the other day, but it's a lovely part of the world. And it is it is something that is interesting, but inevitably, I think a lot of these uh, events become mired in analysis of the so-called special relationship between um, uh, the UK and the US. And we have to be frank, I think, that Joe Biden is somebody who is going to, tr- I think, treat Boris Johnson with a great deal of of scepticism as well. But this is why I think Boris Johnson will be seeking to use this trip to reset his dynamic with the Biden administration, because Joe Biden is pursuing a kind of agenda that Boris Johnson has paid lip service to over there the big spending big government agenda that's Mm. going through things like the american plan for jobs the american plan for families a far more progressive agenda than many people thought joe Biden would pursue when he became president and there's almost this sense that because biden is likely to be a one-term president just because of his age that he's in a hurry to get things done as well and that's and that sort of dynamicism is something that johnson has really been missing arguably particularly since um his re-election in december 2019 Uh, biden obviously has, has said in the past that he considers himself irish um what do you think is going to happen with um northern ireland it's hard to say at the moment. I think we ha- we can't underestimate just how um, harsh the treatment of the people of Northern Ireland has been over the last couple of years, particularly in the Brexit talks. Now, obviously, part of that is to do no, with... I mean, it's got serious. They're not going to be allowed sausages. <laughs> well, it's, it, is, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is. I, 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 in my day job, I work with a lot of colleagues in our Belfast office, mm. and I hear, I hear from them that it's, it's it's inflamed a lot of political tensions over there and there are things like basic goods that can't be delivered as a result of yes. the protocol and given the fact that for the two years that um between the 2017 election which is two years ago uh this week and sorry no four years ago this week <laughs> four years ago this week and 2019 the northern Ireland protocol dominated things um they ended up getting a pretty short end of the stick because largely because of the dup's intransigence but also because of johnson 
steamrolling them when he won his majority in this version of the Northern Ireland Protocol essentially has two borders, the customs border down the Irish Sea, but also the nominal uh, border across between the Republic of Ireland and the province. So J- Joe Biden has sees himself as a sort of, um, sort of a Boston Irish route. He's somebody who cares a great deal about um, the, the plight of Ireland. I suspect that it's not going to be an easy point of conversation between the two men. And it's partly good to, to see a US president that's so engaged. And I think the fact that the Northern Ireland's currently going through as many difficulties as it is, not least of all because the fact we have a new first minister going in this week, uh, not Edwin Poots, but he's nominated a, uh, a close ally of his to take on that role instead. It, having a, a US president that's engaged in that issue, we must remember that Clinton, Bill Clinton played that sort of role in it as well, is it, it was very important to achieving peace in Northern Ireland. And I think it's something that we can arguably see that Joe Biden is going to have a beneficial impact for as well. Yes, I mean, it's, Biden identifies as being Irish. Do you feel that he understands the complexity of what's going on? Joe Biden I mean, It's is, fairly hard even to summarise what's going on. Well, Joe Biden, let's forget about his, his background, because lots of Americans identify with an Irish migrant, mm. Irish emigrant background as well. Let's not forget the fact that Joe Biden has been uh, has had a 50 year career at the top of US politics. He has spent a good chunk of that time in the Senate as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. He has been vice president of the United States for eight years, and he has taken a keen interest in um, British politics in Northern Ireland since as well. So he has had a lot of information come across his desk in that time. He's somebody who's taken a great deal of interest in foreign affairs, and a lot of Americans do feel a great affinity with Ireland. You can argue it's not just the um, the ancestral roots, but it's, it's the shrewdness of the warnings around things like the Good Friday Agreement must not be uh, jeopardised over rows about trade. And he hasn't got caught up and mired in these factional disputes about whether or not it's the EU's fault or the uh, <laughs> or the Americans. And don't forget that the G7, Ursula von der Leyen, the um, European Commission president, will be sitting around the table with the other seven leaders um, from Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, the USA, the UK and the US. So Biden, I think, is seeing himself here as an honest broker um, between the UK and the EU. And we must remember that the protocol hasn't bedded in yet, that they could still have pretty disastrous consequences if it breaks down because that effect is another cliff edge it is another no deal brexit waiting to happen and we all spent so much time trying to avoid that happening it would be a disaster if it was to occur now Mm. um what's the g7 actually supposed to achieve and presumably whatever they're going to announce at the end has pretty well been decided already is it they don't really do much of the hard work uh at the summit itself do they um, well, I think one of the things that's interesting in this is that there are there's been an increasing emphasis, particularly over the last sort of decade and a half, and I'm talking since the financial crisis here, on these multilateral um, forums. So, obviously, you're, maybe people will be aware of the things like the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, but the the idea of the G7 and the G20 is that you get the leaders of the seven and twenty world biggest economies sitting around the table together who can thrash out problems and come through influence themselves. And the G20 was famous, of course, for 
uh, coming up with a solution to the financial crisis when Gordon Brown was chairing it and Barack Obama had just been elected in 2009. A big win for Gordon Brown during his um, harsh years in number 10. The G8, as it was then, was seen as instrumental for forgiving large parts of or um, removing large parts of the debt from the third world in 2005 under Blair's chairmanship as well. So I wouldn't underestimate the importance of getting seven world leaders from the big economies round the table. And also there's a symbolic gesture too, because the eighth member, of course, used to be Russia and Russia is no longer part of that. So I think these are nations that normally see themselves as liberal democratic, um, liberal economics that can come together and deform things. And we must remember that, of course, as much as we talk about Joe Biden and uh, Boris Johnson, actually, this is the swan song, the farewell tour for the the matriarch figure of the G7, Angela Merkel, the mm. Chancellor of Germany stepping down in the autumn. And she's been through, well, four different British prime ministers here, about as many different US presidents in that time as well. God knows how many um, Italian prime ministers. Mm. So there's this, um, there's this sense, I think, of people needing to have the leaders around them, particularly in the COVID world. The fact that leaders are even meeting in person is a big gesture of things getting back to normal, of diplomacy going around. But also we see in each of these countries that democratic institutions have been under pressure. I mean, uh, President Macron was um, slapped in the face by a, a person at a barrier the other day. Mm. Uh, Germany's grappling with what a post-Merkel future looks like. Japan equally coming off the Shinzo Abe era. Many of these countries, for example, including um, Italy and Japan, haven't got a history of uh, stable post-war governments. Uh, The UK has just been through Brexit. Canada's grappling with Trudeau. The EU's got its own problems here. So getting them all in the same room is putting leaders with essentially broadly aligned common values uh, liberal democracy, liberal economics, broadly speaking, round the table as well. And of course, America has been largely absent from playing a role in these forums, the world's biggest economy, because of course, China isn't in the G7 mm. as well, because of course, it's, it, it's the crucial thing is it's, it's, it lacks that sort of liberal political culture. So Joe Biden's, got, Joe Biden's got a lot of work to do. And we all remember that famous photograph of Donald Trump sitting cross-armed with Angela Merkel and the other leaders penning him in to get him to do something. So do things happen at these summits? Absolutely, they do. Okay, uh, time for us to switch topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to Share Radio and The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho uh, Tendency blog. Um, Mike, we need to talk about uh, coronavirus and whether lockdown is going to be lifted and indeed about uh, Portugal being removed from the green list, all things to do with that. So where do we begin? I think it's best that we talk about the Portuguese decision here. And uh, I, I am slightly pressing on personal experience here because I was actually in Portugal uh, the week before we record this. But I hasten to add I was coming back on right. Sunday anyway. Uh, and, but I think this, this the, re- the reason we should talk about this is that it feeds into a, a question of where policy intersects with um, personal responsibility and individual morality as well. 
So uh, an anecdote, when I was I was discussing going abroad, somebody mm. um, said to me, oh, we you know, well, I, I, I personally wouldn't do that. I'm going to stay here. I've got a young child. You know, if you want to go through quarantine, that's fine. Mm. And, there's that, and there's that slight sense, I think, among certain people. And this is a tendency that has come out during, I think, the pandemic or indeed during any national crisis that, that uh, those people that follow the rules have feel they have a moral advantage, if you will, over those who are seen to um be bending them or taking advantage mm. of uh relaxations like by going on it now i have to say that there'll be plenty of people listening to this who don't feel comfortable traveling abroad and that's no decision i understand and and respect um but obviously clearly lots of people felt the need after a year in isolation now holidays are a luxury as well but they're a luxury that people like to have to get away to have some sunshine and i really think it's interesting that the government's approach is really, I think, being more prescriptive than um, probably overly prescriptive, I would argue. And that's not something that I say as somebody who I know my views on what I think the state should and should not do. But just in terms of how to communicate with the public, the, the, the guidelines we've had about, you know, can you go to your partner's house? How are you? Should you hug mm. people? These are these are bizarre dictates from any government, let alone a conservative one. So things like uh, the complex traffic light system for international travel, I, I always lean back on what I've said before, which is having a simpler system and not making these changes with too much short notice. So this happened last year when Portugal was removed from the ban list. People went mm. abroad. If you relax things, if you keep people contained, they're going to people are going to take advantage of that freedom to 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 to, to go abroad, to travel, to do. Um, to, 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 to essentially have some choice and change of scenery. Well, um, I mean, many people argue that holidays are good for mental health. But equally, there'll be people at home who don't feel comfortable with that. And I think this this feeds into the phrase cultural wars comes a lot, but it's, it's equally it's that thing, it's that element of strong judgment and a level of a, la- a sort of, a, I would call it a an abdication of agency by certain people to say, look, I'm following the rules, therefore I don't have to think about it. Actually, in any situation, people have to think about how to interpret even, even very specific guidelines because the government cannot prescribe activity in every area of life. It is not possible. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for the civil service um, and the professionalism of people that work within it, but they cannot possibly anticipate every possible... I don't want to live in a society where we have government... Um, government uh, rules governing where we can hug people i'd much rather have as i've said before a broad set of guidelines yes. travel to these countries don't travel to these countries or if you are going to travel take the risk isolate when you get back you know that that would be mm. i know it's blanket but unfortunately i think in a situation like this you need to have as broad a rules as possible but presumably there were there was i mean you had hassle with tests presumably did you going both both ways or certainly coming back you'd have to have I, I i i'm still waiting the result of my um second pcr test after coming back so i i have to take you have to take a test uh before you go yeah you have to take a test coming back and you have to take another test uh when you land again in the uk which the presumably cost, adds to the cost well the cost of these all in all bear in mind they're all delivered by private companies as well mm. and i think that is fair because i don't believe that the public sector should be asking people to uh should subsidize people going on holiday but i do think that for certain people they should they should offer support for that because it added about a good couple of hundred pounds and for certain people that's going to be the difference between them going on holiday or not as well 
and I don't and I'm worried part of me worries about the effect of the pandemic on as part of the sort of the rolling back of global connections that things like you know there is a danger I think between things like climate change and the fear of pandemics and more barriers going up to international travel and the end of freedom of movement that actually holidays once again become the preserve of the very very rich and that is something that has worried me because I don't want I don't want us to see us lose that progress yes we can talk about traveling responsibly to help the planet and balancing that against interest that we're not we, should, we shouldn't be we should tra- cut down on international air travel but it shouldn't just become the same way that space travels become the providence of people like mm-hmm. elon musk or jeff bezos going to space for two-week holiday now i worry that could happen with foreign holidays as well yes which indeed is the way it used to be i suspect many yeah. of the budget airlines are going to be in terrible trouble when mm-hmm. things are finally listed you might be amused by this um letter in the paper yesterday um, sir, I am amused that Tristan da Cunha, if that's how you pronounce it, is on the green list as a volcanic rock in the middle of the South Atlantic with a population of less than 300. I expect it appeals to adventurous spirits. It has no airstrip. You reach it by a six day boat trip from Cape Town. But uh, South Africa is on the red list. So just I mean, really beggars belief. I mean, it's very amusing. But at the same time, how put something on a green list that can't actually be reached? This is the trouble with the prescription. And, and and then at the other end of it, we have this sort of argument from the opposition where we're not really debating the efficacy of these um, situations. So having a system where, so the red list country is very clear. If you go to a red list country, you shouldn't travel there unless you absolutely need to. Mm. Um, you have to self-isolate when you come back and you can be out of isolation within a week if you take three COVID tests that are negative, which yes. I think seems sensible. That would mean that, you know, that we have a, an admittedly more transmissible variant of COVID-19 that is going round. Whether it's more, um, uh, has higher fatalities or not is a different question. But to contain the spread of a, of a more transmissible virus, I think that makes sense. But equally, we have at the other end the fact that the Delta variant or the Indian variant uh, again, I'm not a fan of these geographical names for the virus. I think I think it leads people to to, to the wrong conclusions about mm. the nature of the virus. Actually, it's it's a global it's a global thing now. The virus the virus is spread around the world. It's not it's not. It's, I think it's wrong to label the variants after countries. I think you then get into this situation where people begin to, as with the Chinese lab leak theory, that becomes discredited because people begin to equate it with some form of nationalism in their minds about against mm. or feelings against that particular country. But the fact Boris Johnson didn't lock down um, routes to India sooner is bonkers, given the fact that the UK has a large um, British Indian population. We have deep connections with India, but also the fact that the political considerations of him wanting to travel abroad as well. And this, again, is why leaving it entirely to the government to decide these whims is not a good thing, because they don't know what to do. They're, they're caught between their sort of political realities. But actually, as I've said before, that broad set of rules of, don't travel abroad unless you have to. These are countries that we think if you need to travel that and you're prepared to accept the risk. And that's the key thing, prepared to accept the risk you can go to. Wash your hands, wear a mask, keep your distance, isolate when you come back for a period, take a couple of tests. I mean, when I went to Far Airport, I took a COVID test in 40 minutes and it's 84% to 97% accurate there, the, mm. the antigen test as well. But again, it's a failing of the government that the fact that the state is now permeated itself into people's lives and everything from the furlough scheme which don't get me wrong i think is has been a wonderful lifeline to people during a, a set of circumstances which is far beyond their control all the way down to guidelines about hugging the question of where we go from here 
where we have nations now like America that have gone from conservatism under Trump to big government again in Britain, likewise, because of the scale of our of our national deficit and the reach of the government. Where does that leave people in a more uncertain world? Unfortunately, it leaves them looking to administrations that aren't really as sure about what to do as they should be. And actually, I think it's okay for governments to say, look, we want to advise you to be broadly sensible, Hmm. but we don't want to dictate every area of your life. Yes. Um, So um, what is going to happen on June the 21st, do we think? Because in theory, that was going to be the end of all the restrictive measures. But as we talk, um, the government is still giving conflicting um, indications of whether that is going to be our Freedom Day or not making it incredibly hard not just for people to plan uh personal events but for you know the hospitality industry the entertainment industry i mean so many businesses must have been hanging on by the skin of their teeth waiting for june the 21st and they still don't know i've got to be honest simon i don't know um recognizing patterns in uh political communications mm. i'm seeing a I'm seeing a a tendency to roll back, and I suspect that actually, whilst we won't see a complete, we won't see a complete abolition of lockdown restrictions on June the twenty first. That much is clear. I think they're they're preparing to roll roll back on that. Uh, I think the work from home guidelines will stay in place. For example, I think the travel restrictions will stay in place. I think that restrictions on sizes of gatherings will do. And in one sense, having criticised the actually, it makes sense because I think actually it's important to keep the progress we've got so far. If we, if we, if we, if they did it for the sake of keeping to that date, if there's, if the data is saying that there's a risk of transmissible rise in virus, and we know there are certain sections of the adult population in communities like Bolton that are not taking up the vaccine as well among the vulnerable sets yes. of people, but we are way ahead with our vaccine rollout as well. And I think it's it's very positive this week that we're seeing the. The twenty under twenty under thirty year olds getting their vaccine yes, for the first but time, but we're never we're never going to be able to get rid of it. I mean, it is now an endemic disease, much like flu and many other things. For the last three to four months, more people have been dying of uh, flu and pneumonia than of COVID. I mean, we're seeing most days we're seeing fewer than ten people dying of COVID across the country. I mean, what are they actually hoping to get? If you're going to get to the stage where we're going to make sure that nobody ever dies of COVID, then you're never going to be able to get rid of restrictions. And what happens next winter when flu makes have come back? I mean, I'm, I'm getting really worried that all these prescriptive um, uh, guidelines from government are never going to disappear now that they've seen that they can basically bully the population uh, and cow them. I mean, are they going to roll them back? I believe they will in the long term, because I don't think you, we have to remember that ultimately the UK economy is very dependent on us being out and present in society because of the need, for example, the hospitality sector, the tourism sector, the the very balance, let alone the fact that actually there will begin to be um, problems emerging that the government has to deal with down the line. I mean, I've seen children, young children going out for the first time and seeing other children and not being really sure how to engage with them because they're just used to dealing with their parents at home. Yes, my daughter's a primary school teacher, so when they came back to school, they didn't know how to talk. Exactly. And it, there's there's the issues as well of the university students falling behind. So particularly for the youngest people in society, the this mm. Gen Z and younger, there are going to be longer term issues that if they're not out and acclimatised and skilled and tooled up, then what opportunities do they have? I mean, for, for those of us who are, are lucky enough to have jobs where we can work from home, 
and where we have been able to save money in the last year. It's This has been an unusually stressful, but ultimately a blip episode that might lead to some better changes for the, you know, for the middle class service orientated, mm. the, 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 uh, the white collar workforce. For people that work in other lines of work, um, particularly whether it's in fine, where it's dependent on migrant labour, to people who own shops in central London or other city centres, there is a need for a return to normality here. And unfortunately, there is a rule you can only take people so far in this as well. And I, I don't I don't believe that any government, I think ultimately with Boris Johnson, his libertarian instincts will win out on this because the government does not want to be continually paying people salaries it does not want to be dictating how people live their lives but equally i i i i experience so much sympathy with people who talk about freedom but unfortunately blasting that particular trumpet right now still at the end after the last year isn't going to push the government into letting us out and ultimately it has only just been over a year and i I believe the measures have broadly speaking been justified i argue with how they've been implemented but actually, I, I, I do actually think that the, the need to, but if we get, but once we've got to a point where most of the population are vaccinated, 90% of the population are vaccinated, then we have to let people out. That, that, is, that is the end goal. I think that is a fair trade-off to make that if anybody hasn't taken up the vaccine, they haven't done it by choice. And that is a risk they have to live with. Mike, let's switch topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, So, Mike, our final um, brief topic, please. I think it's important, really, at the the end, just to consider where we're at in terms of our place in the post-pandemic world right now. And there were a lot of things that happened during the pandemic that have been skated over and it should and some of these were the government's handling of the COVID-19 contracts and um, yesterday there was a high court ruling that ruled that the government had acted unlawfully in the awarding of a contract worth um, £550,000 to a firm that was run by former colleagues of Michael Gove and the Prime Minister's former chief advisor uh, Dominic Cummings. So it went to a public affairs entity called Public First. Um, and the, the work that this agency said they were doing was looking into the public understanding around coronavirus. But a criticism that's been levelled against the government has been that the awarding of these contracts was done largely on the basis of nepotism and favouritism. Um, the founding partners of Public First are Richard Wolfe and James frame both of whom have worked uh with mr gove mr cummings when they were at the department for education uh and miss wolf also co-wrote the conservatives manifesto in 2019 so the good law project have argued that the dominic cummings essentially wanted to push the contract towards um his mates and it's a lot of public money at the end of the day and I think we find time and time again that during the stressful decision making that government by WhatsApp is is a thing. It does happen. I mean, I, I, I use WhatsApp in my in my role as a lobbyist to communicate with my clients and to some extent with the MPs that I work with. Um, you know, it, it's a fairly so, but mostly speaking, we try to do things above board. But you can imagine in a crisis, 
again, cock up rather than conspiracy, how if you needed to make a direct award like this, they would turn to people whom they need. But it's a lot of money to allocate out without due diligence. And it's all very well to argue in hindsight about this. But I think it, we mustn't forget, actually, that the government would have made mistakes. And I think the inquiry we know is going to start into COVID next year. And it might be this. This I think this inquiry will probably be, prepared to say now, probably one of the most important I've seen in my life and bear in mind that I've seen the Butler Inquiry, I've seen the things into the Iraq war, um, the Chilcot report. I, I think this is arguably going to be one of the most explosive because I think it's really going to expose a lot of what Dominic Cummings said about the inefficiencies of our political system as well. well and remember all, all the attempts to get PPE yeah. in the early days. And we mustn't let the rosy glow of the vaccination programme um, blind us to the fact that near the start of the crisis, the government was struggling to handle this and the prime minister in particular uh brought into government people who are now out there in public questioning his wisdom and the wisdom of those people and michael gove's role in this has been vastly underexplored the one thing cummings did do in his evidence was lay all the blame on the health secretary i'm not saying matt hancock yeah. didn't make mistakes i think we're gonna he's currently as we record this before a select committee of mps responding to that Michael Gove in the cabinet office has an all, has an equally important role, but he has been nowhere nearly scrutinised enough, and that's why this story is important to remind that the blame that's going round has to be shared equally between all those at the top of government, particularly the prime minister's close ally, Michael Gove, who once questioned his own fitness for office not such a long time ago. Mike, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog, and Mike will be in conversation with me in a fortnight's time. I won't be around next week. I'm going on a very brief uh, walking holiday in the Chilterns, my first break for some considerable time. Enjoy. Uh, but thank you very much, Mike. But Mike and I will be in conversation in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.